65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon and welcome to the show where we highlight stories from across Wisconsin. And today we are headed to the 2024 World Champion Championship Cheese Contest and learning more about the growing team sports across high school and universities that you play while sitting down. But most importantly, we are spending time this Friday with Milwaukee's favorite wedding officiant, former chief judge of the Milwaukee Municipal Court, current director of the Lubar Center, and bona fide Milwaukee foodie, Judge Derek Mosley. How are you, my friend? I'm so well. I'm so happy that you're here. I am ecstatic to be here. I just it, It's just a good environment. I love being around you because you're always so effervescent. So I'm ready. So have you co-host? I know you've been a guest. You've been a guest on shows that I've hosted before. You Walking into Good Karma Brands, Seem like you knew a lot of people here. You've been in a lot of these shows. Have you ever co-hosted before? Never co-hosted. So All I'm right. excited. We're I'm big... excited. But I have been on a number of shows. You have. It's nice to be in the studio, but it's good to co-host with you. So thank you so much for the invite. We're going to have so much fun today. I'm so excited. There's so many stories I'm going to pick your brain about. I'm ready. I think people don't necessarily know about. But to kick off with some food, with some Wisconsin food. Yeah. You're not from... Wisconsin originally, you're a no, Chicago native, I am. but now we claim you. Yeah, I've been here long enough to. And so the cheese question. Yeah. One, I'm assuming you like cheese. I love cheese. Do you have a favorite cheese? I do. I do. Uh, so my favorite cheese is probably the uh, Rush Creek Reserve from um, Uplands. Oh, this is very specific. This isn't oh. like, oh, I like cheddar. Like this is oh, like, you know, no, to the no, brand no. name. Oh, if you've had it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So this Rush Creek Reserve is a cheese that's made only in the late fall. The cows are only fed dry hay, and they wrap it in a spruce bark. And so, when yes. My so, brain just broke a little bit. <laughs> and so when you cut it open, it's a soft white cheese, but it's being held together by that spruce bark. So grab some of that, that earthiness from the bark. Ugh. What do you eat it with? Oh, crackers. Just crackers? Yeah, I normally do it. I want to be honest? I'll yeah. be honest. I'll yeah. take a spoon to it. It's it's that good. It's that good. But it only comes out once a year. And it only comes in the late fall. And when it comes, it goes fast. Where can you can you get it from a store? Do you have to go to the no, cheesemaker? No, yeah, no, there's stores here. So I, I get mine generally from Bavette on Broadway. Okay. Um, but also Syndix uh, carries some of them as well. But they only like carry two or three. And then they're gone, and then they'll put out more because um, they don't want someone like me to come in and buy, like, all nine. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> they don't put a limit on it. They're just like, you only get one. Right. Remember, like, 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 again, oh. we were talking about the anniversary of COVID. It's about four years now. And the limitations on how many rolls of toilet paper you could buy. <laughs> so it's not like that. Not like that. Okay. It should be like that, probably. But you will know because you get it, and you keep it in the fridge, and let it sit out for a little bit so they can get a little soft. And then you take a knife just to the top of it and you peel back that spruce bark oh my goodness i haven't eaten lunch yet today i'm so sorry. You're really not helping me out man <laughs> well i asked because next tuesday march 5th kicks off the 2024 world championship cheese contest it's in madison this year it goes back and forth between madison and green bay it's hosted by wisconsin cheesemakers association and i actually got to go with eric bilstead two years ago so i have a little bit of an idea of what this event is and it was the first time i realized the intricacies and technical 
specific details of being a cheese, cheese judge. And it reminded me of being like what sommeliers have to go through as far as spitting out the cheese and because you don't want to eat too much in a day and then oh. feel sick in the same way you spit out the wine when you're doing too much. Well, I don't. But uh, in <laughs> wine tasting. I'm like, who are you? But I'm excited because instead of talking to a judge or talking about the event itself, we're going to be talking to one of the Wisconsin contestants. Oh, that's fantastic. So maybe we'll we'll hear a little bit more about his cheese. And you ask him about Rush Creek Reserve. You think he'll know? Oh, of course he'll know. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> All right. Well, when we come back, we will be joined by one of Wisconsin's contestants in the World Championship Cheese Contest, Ron Hedingfeld, who is a cheesemaker at Hill Valley Dairy in Lake Geneva. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Please just give me some cheese. You're going to give us a Please just give me some cheese. Oh, mozzarella is a story. Well, welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Derek Mosley. And what does it take to have a cheese that can compete at the World Championship of Cheese? We are about to find out. Our guest is Ron Henningfeld, who is a cheesemaker at Hill Valley Dairy in Lake Geneva and contestant at the 2024 World Championship Cheese Contest in Madison. Thanks for spending some time with us, Ron. Hello. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, is this your first time having a cheese in the World Championship Cheese Contest? Uh, this will be my second time. I, I had cheese. I submitted cheese to the championship two years ago as as well. It's a every other year competition. Absolutely. And so, what c- category is your cheese competing in this year? Mm-hmm. Okay, I have submitted uh, two cheeses. Uh, one is called Luna. One is called Alina. Uh, but both of them uh, fall into the original cheese category. Hard cheeses with the natural rind is, is the technical category of how it's, um, um, I don't know, entered into the competition, the class it is, is entered into. Because that was the thing when I was there two years ago. I might have seen you there. The surprise, What I was surprised at was how many different categories of cheese there are and the spe- like how specific it gets. I think there's, is there over 20, 20 or 30? Oh, yeah, there's there's definitely more than that, yes. Oh, more, even more than that, okay. Um, so the yeah. cheese that you submit, the cheeses that you submitted, were they a cheese that you were already making, or is this something when you're, you know you're going to submit a cheese into this contest, do you make it especially for the contest, or is it something that you know you're going to be able to produce for the masses? Sure. Um for myself and, and for other cheesemakers, we are submitting cheeses that, that we produce regularly and that is available for for customers. You know, whether that's small scale or large scale, it's it's we're submitting cheeses that we're already producing. Um, it's kind of a, a fair way to enter into the competition. Um, but I will say, you know, we're choosing which batch of cheese or which wheel of cheese or which block of cheese that we do want to submit there, kind of showcasing or of course showcasing our, our best for the, the championship. So Ron, um, I have a question for you. So with this cheese that you're submitting, do you bring it with you when you show up or do you have to send it in advance? <laughs> uh, send, send it in advance. My cheese showed up uh, about two weeks ago to the, to the competition uh, cheese gathering site. Do you worry about that at all? Like someone's going to tamper with right, it? Right, right. That's why I thought maybe you might bring it with a suitcase and handcuffed to your arm. 
Sure, sure. Well, I wasn't worried about it, but uh, now you are. Now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I <laughs> I know the cheese is in good hands. Uh, the the people who you know receive the cheese and host the competition, they want to uh, see every cheese you know uh, in its in its best condition for the competition as well. So so it's in good hands. So from your experience going two years ago and for the per- first time, is there feedback does it work when you get feedback from the judges as far as how you go back and implement that advice or that feedback into your cheese making or is it kind of you don't get an answer of why you won or lost mm-hmm. you know that's one of the main reasons i i enter cheese for the competition is to get uh technical feedback from judges who who know cheese who know what they're talking about who know what they're evaluating um, so yes, that is, that's a valuable piece of that competition for me. So, so Ron, do you do just cheese, uh, hard cheeses or do you submit any curds or I know they do yogurt? Um, yeah, correct. There's, there's yogurt there. There's butter there. Plenty of, plenty of cheeses. Um, myself, I am just submitting hard cheeses, uh, to the competition at this time, though I, I do produce cheese curds. I produce goudas. I, I produce, uh, cheddar and flavored cheddars. Um, but these these two cheeses uh, kind of stand out as my unique and original cheeses. That's that's what I am choosing to to send to the competition. And from your cheese making background, I saw that you worked at Babcock, mm. but you also worked at Uplands, mm. which Derek Mosley was just <laughs> raving about. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, yes. I, I, I'm kind of like a fanboying here because <laughs> you've like worked at some of my favorite places, from Uplands to Clock Shadow, and now I've. To hear you talk, I'm, I'm like a fanboy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I have a fortunate past in, in my cheese making. So after doing my apprenticeship at the Babcock Hall in Madison, my very first job as a licensed cheesemaker then was working at Uplands Cheese, and and it was uh, 2011, one of the first years that Rush Creek was hitting the market. So oh. I, I was. I was able to get hands in on that, producing their Pleasant Ridge Reserve and their Rush Creek Reserve. Uh, so when you were talking about that earlier, I'm like, I, I know what you're talking about. I know <laughs> what you're talking about. And, and I make sure I get myself a wheel of it uh, each year because it is such a treat. Isn't it a treat? And- I'm, now I, I can't yeah. wait. I can't wait for fall to be here so I can try this. There you go. So just quickly before we let you go, Ron, but what does it mean to be able to compete on a global stage like this? I know... Being in Wisconsin, it doesn't feel like a global stage, but truly, when I was there two years ago, there was Japanese cheesemakers, there was truly people from all over the world. And so being a small family-owned Wisconsin business, what does it mean to be able to compete at this level? Hmm. You know, it's. I guess we're fortunate that this competition is in Wisconsin. We're, we're super fortunate. Uh, not only do, you know, uh, attendees like yourself get to go see it, the public can go see it, customers can go see it. Um but yeah, for for a small cheesemaker like myself, it's there's not a lot of at least there's not distance and shipping and and barriers like that in the way, and to be able to to put my cheese, you know, in a competition and and on a stage with the world's best cheeses, um, it's it means a lot. Like I said earlier, you know, getting the the technical feedback from world-class judges that do come from around the world to judge our cheeses. There's, there's a lot of value in that. And then just, you know, whether I go away from, from the competition with uh, a top award or not, like just being 
being and and seeing and being part of the event where the the top cheeses are identified and and celebrated um is just it's just a great you know piece and piece of of the cheese making industry and the camaraderie that at least us us small cheese makers of Wisconsin we all know each other and we're rooting each other on there so whether it's my cheese or whether it's 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 a friend's cheese that that you know does well at the competition um it's it's exciting to to be part of it so Ron, if I wanted to pick up your cheese and I wanted to get it from the dairy, what cheese yeah. would you say I should get to try first? Yeah, um, boy, I I would lean you. Let's let's go with Luna. Luna is a, a cheese I I started to produce a couple years ago, with in mind trying to make a cheese that that in essence. Um, kind of tastes like the moon. What I what we think the moon would taste like. So it's it's got this kind of earthiness, this nuttiness, tanginess, saltiness. It's aged about a year and a half in in my Affinage room, which is which is like an above uh, above ground cheese cave. Um, so it's got a nice natural rind on it. Um, I I love it. Customers are falling in love with it. I would I would put that in front of you. All right. Well, if you would like to taste the moon. Luna Cheese from Hill Valley Dairy. Ron Henningfeld is the head cheesemaker and owner there in Lake Geneva. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Ron, and good luck next week. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much. All right. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Yeah, he, yeah, he. This coat is now in session. His honor, Judge Pigmeat Martin Bazaden. It's just about ready to do that thing. I don't want no tears. I don't want no lies. Above all, I don't want no alibis. This judge is here. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Judge Derek Mosley. And we just had someone text in on the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620 with a good pun. You don't go by Kristen Bree when judging that event, do you? <laughs> da, da. Um, I actually have never been a judge of any kind of food event. I have never been asked, but you have. Absolutely. You name it. Chili, uh, ribs, um, greens, collard greens. greens. Yeah, oh. collard greens. Um, oh, how did that start for you? Were you a ju- were, you, were you an actual judge first, or were you asked oh, to I'll, judge food first? Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was an actual judge first, and I think the first one I ever did was a a barbecue contest down at um, Sherman. Uh, no, no, not a Sherman. It was at the uh, Fondy Farmers Market. Ooh, okay. And so all these they had they were there at five a.m. with their grills starting to smoke, and I came in around noonish, and there's several other judges, and we got to try ribs. Rib tips and chicken. So they did those three. All right. And then I've, I went back to another event and it was just all greens, collard greens, okay. mustard greens, uh, turnip greens. And I've done, oh boy. You did last year the first, not spring rolls, um, dumpling. Dumplings. Yeah. You were the first, uh, it was the first ever Milwaukee dumpling, dumpling fest. fest. Yes. And so when you judge, because at Dumpling Fest, you even as an attendee, you're not an official judge. You write down which ones you think were the best. I also went to Milwaukee Records casserole call oh, yeah. earlier yep. this year, and I f- I forget. I don't know. I eat it and like it's it's good or bad. It's bad to me. Ranking them is very hard. So how do you keep track when you try so much food in a day and then you have to unbiasedly, objectively? Right. 
pick one. Yeah, it, it's really the dumpling fest was really hard because there was a lot of really good ones. And they're all chefs. I mean, they're all. I mean, the barbecue contest. These are just you know people who are just barbecuing in their backyard and say, I think I'm pretty good at ribs, right? But dumpling fest, it was like a James Beard winner. Yeah. I mean, there's all these amazing judges, uh, chefs. So that's difficult. And I'm not like the guy who spits out the cheese. I'm eating that whole dumpling. And then I like let it marinate a little bit and then move on. So do you think there's an order of which is there a benefit or is it is it better or worse to be the first thing you eat versus the last thing you eat when you you have to try multiple things in one contest? Yeah, so that first one is what you normally judge everything off of. Okay. And so I'm not the guy who eats it and then writes down my score. I eat everything and then I have a little sample of them left and then go back and eat that oh. again. Because otherwise, this, you know, you're always judging it by that first one you try. And if that one's awful or if that one's really good, then all the other ones seem to fall on the wayside. So I tried to eat every one first and then take a little piece of the ones I kept. And, oh, yeah, that's perfect. Have you ever judged a cheese eating contest? No, but I'm... But you want to. You already do. know what you would pick if, if Rush... Oh, uh, was Rush, Rush Creek Reserve? Rush Creek, yeah, that would be a no-brainer. But what is a what is a type of food that you would love to judge that you have not yet? Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, truthfully, ribs are barbecue is my thing. So okay. I love ribs. I love barbecue chicken. I love rib tips. I love uh, brisket, shoulder. You name it. So that's. That's my creme de la creme. Is there any other kind of contest besides a food contest that you would like to be a judge of? Oh, <laughs> I've done dance contests. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know. You're obviously a good dancer. I could dance, right. You <laughs> saw right. me in between. All right, well, coming up next, you were a judge. You're now the director at the Lubar Center at Marquette University. We're going to talk about what it is, what role does it play in our community, and what events you guys have coming up. I am Kristen Bry. He's J Derek Mosley. This is Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Derek Mosley, the current director of the Lubar Center at Marquette University, former chief judge for the municipal court in Milwaukee. But you're still doing, you're still a wedding, wedding officiant. Yes, I still do weddings. We just had someone text in on the WTMJ talk and text line, 855-616-1620. Hi, Judge Mosley. Thanks for marrying my wife and I five years ago. P.S. Still going strong. Ben and Trista from South Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good to hear. I'm glad they're doing well. There you go. Oh, that just makes it all worthwhile. I feel like we'll sprinkle some more officiant stories in sure. throughout the rest of the day. But... You are currently about a year in of being the director at the Lubar Center, not to be confused with the Lubar Entrepreneurship Center at UWM. Right. Is it, do they get confused a lot? Yeah, they confuse them a lot. The, the Lubars do a lot of stuff. They do a lot of stuff. <laughs> They've yes. made a big impact in Milwaukee. But I guess for the Lubar Center in at Marquette. Correct. At the law school. What is it? Yeah. So first and foremost, we are a venue inside the building. And we're a venue that holds about 200 plus people. And our whole goal is to bring people of different nationalities, uh, political ideologies, economic backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic statuses into the Lubar Center to just talk and to engage in conversation about problems that solve that we all need to solve. 
problem that we have and what was the mission of both Shell and Mary and Lubar was that we don't talk to each other anymore. In this country, we are all in our little silos and no one talks and we don't get to solve problems. So we do that a number of ways. So we do our uh, on the issues where there's some particular issue. Well, I will bring a guest in, count uh, point, counterpoint, and we'll talk, ask questions and open it up to the audience. We do our get to knows where I bring somebody in uh, from the community that you don't know that affects your life every day. We're talking about food, basically. And um, I had Chris Corkery in, and he's the head of 100 Acre. And so they provide all of the salad mixes and all the vegetation for all of the schools, all of the restaurants But what's interesting in about that is that they grow it on the north side. 31st is in Capitol. Indoors. It's the, it's the largest in the Midwest uh Vertical hydroponic farm. It's amazing. And so people would have never known who he was. And yeah. so we do stuff like that. And then I just brought another thing because of my food background, the uh, heritage dinners. So each heritage month, we throw a dinner. So we just had one uh, two Sundays ago. It was for Black History Month. And so I we featured um, West and East African, uh, Creole, and Jamaican. And so uh, guests would come. Our motto was meet someone, learn something. Try everything. So we sit you with people you don't know. You meet people. The chefs come out, tell you what you're eating, why it's important to their culture. And then we eat everything. And they're just all, we're just doing events to bring people together to learn, to listen, and to fellowship with each other. And what have you learned or what have you pivoted after you've done it for a year now? Mm -hmm. What are you changing for 2024? Yeah, so we're changing, as far as the heritage dinners are concerned, we're changing the different types of cultures okay. that we're featuring. As far as the get to knows are concerned, we're broadening it out just not just here in Milwaukee, but trying to go national as well, get to know. And um, as far as the on the issues, we're, we're doing pretty much the same. That that's a okay. pretty tried and true. Uh, people just want to talk about certain issues and get the facts. So do you come up with the issues or do you? is it suggested to you what issues should be talked about? Well, both. So okay. we have a team. Um, it's myself and then our program manager, um, Hillary DuBlois. We sit down with other members of the team. We figure out what are we going to talk about? What are people interested in? And we get a lot of emails from people. You should talk about this. And so we just take it from there. Well, one of the issues you did recently... We have not talked about it on the show yet, but I want to get someone on the show. But we're going to talk a little, a little bit about it when we come back. Is the fact that Wisconsin is dead last when it comes to arts funding? Yeah, it's not even close. Which, when we live in Milwaukee and we have a symphony and the ballet and a touring musical theaters, there's a lot of arts in Milwaukee. But I think people sometimes forget that that is. Privately, privately funded, funded. Yes. and donations. thank God for those people because and, yeah and so you recently had an event on that issue so we're going to talk about that when we come back we're going to talk about some of the fun events that you guys have planned coming up he is Derek Mosley I am Kristen Bry and this is Spanning the State Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Derek Mosley, director at the Lubar Center at Marquette University Law School. And last month, you had a, one of your events on the issues, museum and arts funding in Wisconsin. And now this was a fact that I already knew, but I think might surprise people, especially people in southeast Wisconsin, when we have a very rich arts and culture scene, yeah. but that we in Wisconsin are dead last when it comes to 
publicly funding the arts. Yeah. So we, we had um, the Wisconsin Policy Forum had actually done a, a report on it. And when they rank what people it's what you pay per resident mm-hmm. for arts. And so the highest, of course, is Washington, D.C. It's like fifty four dollars per person or something like that. It's something it's a lot. It's, it's a lot in the grand scheme. We were like 14 cents per resident for arts funding that that it's given to the arts public funding and so that's that's tough that's tough and then especially when, when see, next door in minnesota they're fourth oh yeah they're, yeah they're they're real high and when you look and you see you're below mississippi then you start wondering what are we doing what are we doing here and it's we're so fortunate because there are people who believe in the arts and it's a lot of private donations to keep us what we have alive, but I recently joined the next gen council for UPATH, which is a council that is meant to try to get the next generation of patrons of the arts because a lot of our patrons are, let's older. say older. Yes. 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 They are not going to be a lo- around for right. a lot longer. And so really trying to usher in the next wave of people who are going to keep this alive because there's no guarantee that our government is going to keep it alive. Right. And performing arts is a little bit easier, right? Because people understand that more than they can see than, it. They can, they can, see, they can go feel it, see hear it in it. person. Yes. Right. Right. Whereas when you're talking about, you know, artists who are creating things or you're going to different galleries and trying, that's a little bit more difficult. And, you know, when you talk about budget issues and people talk about budget issues, everybody understands police, fire, you know, public safety, they understand that. But it's harder to get them to say, yeah, I'm willing to pay this much in tax money to help in the arts. And did it come up as far as the economic reason why we should invest in arts? Absolutely. It came up not only in, in the, what they bring to the community, the, the money that's generated from what they do, but also the people you bring in. Um, we had people who were from northern Wisconsin who came down for this event, and they were like, we have nothing. Mm. And we're wondering why young people don't want to come and live here because we have no arts for them to be a part of. And it's not important. It's not a priority to them. And and so we had this kind of dual uh, conversation going on between us, who has a lot but, going yeah. on, but it's not publicly funded it's private funded and up north it has not a lot and they're seeing how can we get artists to come up to us and so interesting things are bantered around from you know like a universal basic income from artists you know if you do that the state would do that because some places do do that and artists do move to those states and create some magical things i once and now i'm going to blank on the name of the town but there was a town i think in kentucky where it was kind of a rough area with a lot of vacant lots and they sold they made the decision then they sold a lot for a dollar to an artist and it totally revolutionized the city i can believe it and as far as the amount of artists who moved in who made this all the public space more beautiful it became a very hip fun place to live that then attracted people who were not artists to live there though and so there is something Non, not that tang- like uh, tangible, right? But it's there as far as believing in artists and letting artists take over your community and what they can do as far as attracting more people to move there. A- absolutely. So, um, creatives just think differently. Yes. Hey, right. And so, uh, I know now they have uh, artists in residence at the Department of Public Works 
in really? Milwaukee. Yes. Just so that they can have these engineers think differently. And it's amazing the things they're coming up with. All right. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about some of the events that are coming up that people can still attend, including Women of the RNC, Sister Helen Prejean, which is a throwback to a movie that we all saw a long time oh, ago. Yes. So I'm, I'm excited to see that she's still kicking. But he is Derek Mosley. I am Kristen Bry, and this is Spanning State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Judge Derek Mosley, my guest co-host today. So we talked about some of the events that you've had in the past. What do you have coming up in the next month or so? So we have uh, we have some great things coming up. So we have um, next week we have the uh, Women of the RNC. So it's Women's History Month today. Yep, starting officially. today, the whole month. And so um, people don't know that there are three women who are actually running the entire RNC, like day-to-day operations uh, here in Milwaukee. And we're having them come to talk about it because people don't understand what all goes into it. So they describe the production. it as, Right. They say it's like yeah. doing the Super Bowl three days in a row, right? Yeah. And so that's a lot to ask. So they're going to be here. It's going to be um, just a conversation to get to know them, where they're from, why they got involved, and what we can expect from the convention here in Milwaukee. I cuz we don't even know yet because we're inside the boundary right of the RNC yeah. and it's not been clear to us yet as far as are we working from home, which is hard to do when you have a radio show. But <laughs> cuz I I don't know if we're since we didn't get the convention for the Democrats in 2020 I'm very excited just to see what to experience this and see what it's like to have our city taken over by this. Agreed, agreed. And the 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 things that are coming in, the money's coming into the city, the the restaurants, the hotels, the convention center. I mean, there's all these amazing things that are happening that people don't know about. Not to mention the fact they told me like yesterday, we need volunteers. That they sent me that email saying, "Could you can we talk about volunteers because that's something they do need." All right. Yeah. And then what else do you have coming so up? So we also have one of my favorite people on the planet, uh, Sister Helen Prejean. And most people might know her from the movie um, Dead Man Walking. So you told me this and that I was like, wow, throwback. Yeah. Because that we, was the mid-90s, that, that movie? Yeah, that might actually have been like the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Sean Penn, Susan uh, Sarandon. Susan Sarandon, yeah. yep. And so she is still doing that work. She's 84 years old, and she's still, she was just with Ivan Cantu, who was a death row inmate down in Texas, has been following with him, and she's going to tell that story as well. And we also have, coming up in April, It's April is uh, National Library Month, and we have uh, Dr. Joan Johnson from the Milwaukee Public Library is going to be here t- trying to get to know her as well. The things that the library does, it's a huge library facility, and the downtown library it's just gorgeous. I can't wait till my daughter's a little bit older because I've seen all of the magicalness oh. of of the downtown Milwaukee Library as far as the kids section. Yes. And I have friends all over the country who know about the Milwaukee Public Library because they have an amazing social media presence. I was presence. just going to say that. It's unbelievable. And it's all, they didn't hire anyone. They no. didn't hire a marketing firm. They didn't hire a special content creator. It is all of the brains of the people who already have jobs and do other things at the library. Absolutely. But the creativity of the things they come up with that are so pure and library-esque. So right. if you don't follow the Milwaukee Downtown Library yeah. on social media, definitely go do that because it's do it. joyful. And, but that's but that's what we do, right? So 
we want the Lubar Center to be this like town hall where we have conversations, but we also get to meet our fellow Wisconsinites who are doing great things. And where can people find more information on those events? Yeah, so you can just go to uh, law.marquette.edu backslash Lubar dash center. Perfect. All right. Well, coming up next hour, we're going to do a little on this day in Wisconsin history because we have such a history buff with us and a story of the six triple eights, which I did not know. And so I'm excited to learn more about that and a little more about the rise of esports. This is Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Derek Mosley. Stay with us. 65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am here today with my good friend, Derek Mosley, as my guest host. Derek, you're making my job very easy on this Friday. This is so much fun. It is very fun. Yep. We I'll also see. had someone text in on the WTMJ talking text line, 855-616-1620. Derek Mosley is a great guest today. Oh, so well, thank we'll you. We'll have to have you back. As, I, as I'm Regis finding my Kelly, <laughs> we'll have to have you back. Uh, well, you are a history buff. I am, very much so. I think that's the last time you were on the afternoon news when you were talking about your social media in February for yep. Black History Month. Absolutely. This is how many years have you been doing it now? Uh, almost fifteen. Fifteen years. Yeah. So, so if, for people who are hearing it for the first time, what is it that you do? Yeah, you just so, finished. Absolutely. So I do a one Black History fact a day for the entire month of February. So generally it's twenty eight facts, but this year was twenty nine facts. Twenty nine facts. Got an extra day, and I do it on all social media platforms on LinkedIn. Um, Insta, Facebook. I don't do it on Twitter. And you're not on TikTok yet. No, I'm not on TikTok. Because I tagged you in one of my videos saying, go follow him. And someone said, I can't find him on TikTok. I was like, I haven't convinced him to be joined there yeah, yet. <laughs> not, not yet. No, not yet. But uh, yeah, I love it. It's history. And, you know, I came by it um, because of my mom. And you know, my mom grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, she told me when I was in fifth grade about the Tulsa race massacre. And I remember going to my fifth grade teacher, all due respect to her, and I said, hey, how come we don't learn about the Tulsa race massacre? And she said, "Uh, because it didn't happen. And I think she said that because I'm sure she didn't learn it. She didn't know either. Right. And so that's why I went on this journey. I'm like, I have to learn this so at least my kids know their history. And so I looked, I typically frequent the Wisconsin Historical Society on this day in history. And so I thought we could have some fun with that today. So this is not necessarily black history but on this day in 1985 herb cole purchased the bucks he sure did do you know how much he bought them for i think i do all right i think it's 18 million it was yeah 18 million dollars in 1985 do you know how much he sold them for in 2014 i'm gonna guess i think i think it's 800 million 550. 550, okay. $550 million after $18 million. That's pretty impressive. But It's a good good return on investment. And now it's $2.3 billion. And now it's a lot more than that, (laughs) yes. Especially because he just immediately turned around and gave $100 million back to To build build the the Spicer. Yeah. So that was today, but also on this day in uh, in in Wisconsin history, Milwaukee United School Integration Committee, so music for short, was formed. And Lloyd uh, Barabee was the chairman. Yep. And this was the campaign basically to desegregate schools. Yeah. Lloyd so do you, have you done a fact on this? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So Lloyd Barbie, uh, Wisconsin lawyer and, uh, lived here in Milwaukee and you know, Milwaukee public schools were segregated. 
And were they legally segregated, or is it because of redlining and where what the neighborhoods looked like? It was a little bit of both. Okay, it was a little bit of both, but they're still trying to move students to go to other schools within MPS. And if you were on a certain side of town, they wouldn't let you go to school on the other side of town. And so here's the crazy part about this is that we always talk about uh, Ruby Bridges, young little six-year-old mm-hmm. girl who desegregated the schools in New Orleans, Louisiana. That was in 1960. Lloyd Barbie, he got his ruling from the Supreme Court in 1976. Think about that. That's this... even after the Civil Rights Act in 68. 76 is when Milwaukee desegregated its schools. It's, it's a little frightening. And what did that look like because it was a there was a lawsuit there was a ruling but what did they actually have to do to desegregate yeah so uh what did mps have to do yeah yeah so mps had wound up busing kids from across town and it took till 76 because you know once they won there were all these appeals and then after all the appeals 1976 and whenever i do black history facts to try to tell people that our history isn't that old I mean, when we see pictures, we always see them in black and white, so we get this impression that it happened so long ago. But 1976 isn't all that long ago. I mean, my parents were fully-fledged adults. I think they might have been their last middle of college. Yeah. And I was six. Yeah. Six, right? And and that's when the schools were desegregated. And who did I, you know, I, I used to read history and think, oh, that's, that's Ruby Bridges. That's Rosa Parks. That's so long ago. No. No, no, no. That was. I think I read a fact recently that like the difference between now and 1990 is the same difference between 1990 and like the mid 50s. Isn't that crazy? And it, I that blew my brain a little bit because yeah. I was as someone who was born in 86. It's crazy. It, right? 50s feel like a long time, a long ago. time ago. But since it is the we just had the end of Black History Month, it is the first day of Women's History Month. Yes. When we come back. There's a great story that blends the both of those, the six triple eights, and a local connection to that. So we're going to learn more about that when we come back. I am Kristen Bry. He is Derek Mosley, and this is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Derek Mosley as my guest co-host on this Friday, March 1st, the first day of Women's History Month. We just ended Black History Month. And this is a great story as far as kind of two worlds colliding, colliding of both of those demographics and the six triple eights, which I did not know until you brought this up to me. Oh, good. So teach me, teach our listeners. Here we go. Yeah, thank you. So, um... So World War II is going on, and if you're a soldier in World War II, you would be traveling all across Europe. So you might be in one town for an hour. You might be there for a couple of days. But while all this is going on, all of your loved ones back home are mailing you letters, postcards, little pieces of home, cake, and cookies. But they couldn't find all the soldiers because they were moving all around. So they just stuffed all these letters and bags in a warehouse. And so they decided we have to do something because morale was going low. People were forgetting who they were fighting for. And so they said, we need to start this new unit. So they came up with the 6888 Postal Battalion. And they go by the six triple eights. And it was an all-black, all-female unit. 
who was trained just like regular soldiers went through boot camp, never issued guns, but were still trained as soldiers. And they shipped them off to uh, England to these warehouses to go through this mail. And so they go to the warehouse. The mail is up to the ceiling in these bags. And they want they come up with a system that the military still uses today. Okay. That name and serial number. There were 7,500 Robert Smiths. 7,500. <laughs> different. Different. All Not different. just like that Not one the, guy got a lot of no, letters. No, no. <laughs> 75 individual people getting mail. So they... Uh, they work three shifts, uh, 24 hours a day, process 65,000 pieces of mail each shift, wound up doing a total of 17 million pieces of mail. Wow. And they got everybody their mail on time. They told them they have six months to do it. Those 800 women got it done in three months. It's just an amazing that story. That is an amazing story. No fanfare, not in any history books, nothing. They got fanfare recently, but not then. So they... It was estimated to do six months. They ended up spending three months there, and then they just came home? Nope. They shipped them to France to do the same exact thing. Oh, wow. Okay. And so they did that, and then they just came home, disbanded the unit. They came home, and that was it. No one even heard of them. And then maybe three years ago, yep, three years ago, um, Tyler Perry, uh, that Tyler Perry. The big Tyler Perry. Yeah. He he hears the story and wants to start a movie about it, so starts researching it, puts it out. I see his post. What's the name of the movie? Six triple eight. Okay. Yeah, it's coming out this summer. Okay. So and, I was going to say it has not come out. No, not yet. Okay. Not yet. And so it, I I saw his post, and so I started reaching, searching it, found it, made it a post for my Black History Month posts. I get a call from this woman, and she's like, "I saw your post on the six triple eight. My mom's a six triple eight. I'm like, oh my goodness. And she's like, I got one better for you. She lives in Milwaukee. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And so she said, once you come in this Saturday, it's her 98th birthday. And she's going to get the, you know, a, a proclamation from the mayor and you should come. So I got to go meet her. Her name's Anna Mae Robertson and she is amazing. Tell me more about her. Well, so she, I asked her, like, you know, you processed 17 million pieces of mail. And she was like, we did? You know, because they just, they're like, they just did our job. She said, all, all they cared about was not to let down black people at home because oh, wow. they were worried that this was going to be a reason to not let, black soldiers work their way up in the ranks because they can't do this work, the hard work. So those women um, carried the sh- on their shoulders the whole race, if you will, because they knew if they failed, it would affect everybody. And so they, they kept saying all the time, low morale, no mail, no mail, low morale. They just kept saying it over and over again while they processed this mail. It's an amazing, it's an absolutely amazing story. And she lives here in Milwaukee is she from Milwaukee? She's from Milwaukee. Living, yep. Living, born and bred. Yep. Yep. And then she actually uh, has a birthday next week and when she turns 100 years old. A big 100. Yeah. Here's the sad part, right? So there's 855 women who are part of this unit. There are only four still remaining. And one of those four is anime who lives in Milwaukee. And it's just an amazing story that should be in Milwaukee history books for our connection, but also for what those women did as a result of... Um, I posted that post. A, a a woman I know sent me uh, a message on my post that said, I spent time sitting reading letters that my mom and dad wrote to each other, or my grandfather and grandmother wrote to each other during the war. And to think that the six triple eights helped get them that mail, she said it just brought me to tears. And, and that's what it's all about, right? That's why we, we need to teach our history. 
We also need to teach letter writing. When's the last time you got a letter? Oh, oh, I haven't gotten a letter in a long I don't, time. I got a card. Yeah, get cards. But no I get letter. cards basically only from my mother. She's right. a big card giver. <laughs> but I, and I have a lot of those. But a letter, like a love letter? I don't know the gotten... last time I got a love letter. Oh, gosh. Message no. to my husband listening. My, write me a love letter. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> All right. Well, when we come back, one of the other additional things you do on the laundry list of things that you do is implicit bias training. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about if it's been impacted at all since DEI has kind of become a boogeyman over the last sure. year. So he is Derek Mosley. I am Kristen Bry. We will talk about that next on Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry with Derek Mosley. And you do lots of things. You're on seven boards. You run the Lubar Center. You're a wedding officiant. You you judge food competitions. <laughs> but you also teach implicit bias trainings. Yes. What is that for people who don't know? Sure. And I don't refer to it as implicit oh, bias. Okay. And the reason why I don't say implicit bias is because the vast majority of people have no idea what the word implicit means. There you go. So I use unconscious bias because okay. people tend to understand that. So I was trained by the National Judicial College to do this for judges. Uh, so it started with giving it to judges across the country, then it moved to police officers and then probation agents and then teachers. And then it just blew up. And now it's Fortune 500 companies. I'm going all over. And so basically... Um, People understand the fact that our brains are an amazing tool, but we take in 11 million bits of information each minute. Think about that. Your brain does that. But you're only consciously aware of 40. Oh, wow. That's the truth. You're only consciously aware of 40. And so your brain is processing all this information. So your brain takes, we call them mental shortcuts, to save you time and energy, right? You don't want to have to process everything every single time something happens. So your brain remembers things that you might not remember. Remember deja vu? You had mm -hmm. that feeling? Your brain's processed Isn't that before. Isn't that just before. the matrix question? Well, yeah, right? But your brain's processed that before. You're just not consciously aware of it. And so that's what we do. I try to teach people that nothing that happens, it's not, unconscious bias doesn't mean you're racist. It's, we all have Or this. sexist or, or sexist, any of the or ists. any other ists, right? It's just that we've been hammered with so many things as we grow up that our brain compensates. And so it saves you time by just making a snap decision. But sometimes those snap decisions can have adverse effects. And that's what we talk about. And so what's some of the more recent ones that you've done? I just did one um, yesterday. Oh, yeah, I called you and you were like, I'm yeah, about to go do yeah, this. I'll call you back. Yeah, I was at the uh, so the uh, Department of Transportation through a, a giant conference. And it was uh, all the contractors that they work with. Um, and they wanted me to come and talk because, you know, you have a lot of people who are looking for work, right, who have all shades and colors, and they just want to make sure that they get a fair shake. And so I'm just talking to this whole room of people about just to think about this. I, I just want you to think about it because we don't often think about it. And what is the reaction typically after in the beginning versus the end of one of these trainings? Yeah, so, um, it, you know, at the end, everybody's like, it makes so much sense. Like, oh. Right. But, but, you know, beforehand, everybody's kind of guarded and you can see it. you start talking and everybody's like, they're pulled back. They're not paying attention. And, and then as you start going, I use a lot of ex real life examples. And then people are like, thank you for the examples. It makes sense to me. And then I always point them to the implicit association test. It's a I've test that. Yep, that was developed by Harvard University just to get a gauge on where you stand. And some people are shocked because the test works. You see something quick and you have to react real quick. Just hit two buttons real quick. 
and your brain takes over as you start doing it. And you're like, you're starting to equate certain things. Well, it's media. It's how you've grown up. Oh, it's what you've been exposed to. Absolutely. Absolutely. But things are changing. I, I always tell the story. When I was growing up as a kid, it was black couple goes to the grocery store. White couple goes to the bank. Asian couple um, buys a car. You go, you watch TV now, and it's like, you know, black man, everyone's Asian woman in a biracial, gets a car. Right. In a biracial relationship. Right, right. And so it's more like who we are as a society. And so we're starting to break down those uh, predetermined facts that our brain takes over with. Has the last year or so, I would Oof. say, I would say the year. A year. DEI has all of a sudden become kind of this boogeyman. There's a lot of debate and fights over it. In the corporate setting, in the UW system, has that impacted how people are receiving or even requesting this yes. training? Yeah. So after uh, 2020, so after the, I call it our racial awakening after mm-hmm. George Floyd, I, I, I was doing like. You're very busy. Oh, yeah. I was very, very busy. <laughs> and then you get to see companies who weren't very vested. They were vested initially because everybody was doing it and they didn't want to lose workers to other companies that are doing this because people were looking for companies that believed in it. So they would pack up and move. I'm going to go to this company. And so they said, well, we should do this too. And then now it's been the shift where everybody's like, well, I don't know if DEI is, if it, if it works, if we should be talking about it. And you see companies when they start getting laying off people, it's normally people in their DEI offices. But here's the thing. There's a large number of corporations who are like, we are vested in this because they have a product and the people who buy their products are vested in this. And so it's important. Is when the way you just phrase that, is there a difference that you've seen of businesses that sell to consumers versus businesses that sell to other businesses? Definitely. Interesting. Definitely. Yes, most definitely. But the good thing about it is that in Wisconsin, we are pretty good. Yeah? I mean, uh, yes, the corporations in Wisconsin are really, I'm still doing trainings to corporations all over the state. That's why the whole thing that's happening out of Madison is so surprising to me because it, it doesn't jive with what's going on. Well, that's what was going to be my next question. Is the narrative that's coming out of Madison and these political fights reflected in the companies or is it two separate it's, it, things It's happening? actually two separate things happening. And I think the reason why you have these two separate things happening is because I just, I think the corporations get it. They understand it. And I think, you know, it's politics. Everything is political, no matter what it is. If someone says this, I have to say this, and it's political. But corporations understand the bottom line, and they know that there are there's a fight for workers. That's the other thing, is just the change in the next generation of how multicultural they are just oh. in their own demographics. You talk about biracial relationships. And yep. just what it, I, don't, I actually don't know the stat off the top of my head, but as far as when in this year, white people will no longer be the majority of American citizens. Yes. So uh, the what is it now? They say 2050? It's, it's around there. I think it's okay. 2050. Where people have, well, so already people of color are the global majority Mm -hmm. right now. And so, but if we're going to talk about here, then yes, 2050. And so, you know, this workforce now, the Gen X, Gen Zs, they they will just pack up and walk off. They're like, you know what? You don't do this. I'm going to go over here. And corporations understand that. And they want to be competitive and they want um, a workforce that's reflective of their customer base. And they get it. Now, what happens political, you know, politics is always last, 
right? They were the last for uh, voting rights for women. They were the last for voting rights for minorities. The last, we're all government's always last, right? When it comes to that stuff, corporations tend to be ahead of the game on some of that stuff. Interesting. All right. Well, coming up next after the news, do you play video games? Oh yeah. Big video gamer over here. If you at home play video games, I would love to hear from you on the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620 because esports is a thing. So, Sighting Unlimited and WTMJ News Time, 2.30, ABC News and local headlines are next. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Derek Mosley. Are you a gamer? Yeah. I am a gamer. You are a gamer. I am. Okay. Yeah, I am. I was more of a gamer a, a, a little bit earlier. More more so when you had more time? Yeah, kids kind of changed all that. But So what what was your go-to games? Oh man. So I all the Tomb Raiders. Oh. Cuz that's my thing. So I, I like to play games where, you know, there's a little shooting, right? Little but, shooting. Little shooting, and then you go around and you solve puzzles and you you have to take this piece and run it over there, put it in the machine and go back, things like that. I love that. Uh, Resident Evil. I love survival horror games. Horror is like my favorite genre of movies and games. So a game that I can watch, play, and be terrified at the same time, that's like the perfect. That's perfect. Have any of the games you used to play been turned into good movies? Because no. both They're of all... those, I think the Tomb Raider <laughs> yeah. and Resident Evil, not the best movies. But let me tell you, I've seen them all. You have? I've okay. seen every single one of them. <laughs> what about Last of Us? I love Last of Us. Did you play the game? No, I didn't play the game, okay, but so you... my daughters played the game. Oh. And so they played the game, and then they got me into the TV show, which I absolutely love. The TV show was, I'm not a gamer. The last games that I really played extensively If you was, say Pong, we're going to fight. It was not Pong. <laughs> it was the Super Nintendo Donkey Kong. Uh, wow. So, like, 90s. So not even Mario Kart? My brother got upgraded. He got a Nintendo 64, and I was terrible at mario kart i would just drive off the, the edge every time and so i just found other things to spend my time doing and that's basically the last time i oh. uh, dabbled into gaming experiences i had an atari i had intellivision i had ColecoVision. i had nintendo, i don't even know what some of these are i had nintendo i had playstation one two three four <laughs> I, I had out now and then my kids were xbox kids so they had to pull me away from PlayStation to be Xbox, so we got an Xbox, and now everybody's back to PlayStation. So, so your girls both play. Oh yeah, so oh yes. That's what's fascinating to me. And our next guest is going to talk more about the rise of esports, and not and truly as sports as team sports. The amount of high schools that now have competitive teams, the amount of universities that have competitive teams, and coming up in the next couple of weeks is going to be the Wisconsin Esports Summit. So our guest, Brandon uh, Chalker, is going to be with us next. He is the MK Sport MKE Sports Alliance founder. So he's going to talk about the economic opportunity, which you may not actually associate with video games, but there's a lot of money to be made as a state, as a city. So we will talk about that next. This is Spanning State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry with Derek Mosley, and we are joined by Brandon Chalker, founder of MKE Sports Alliance. And he's here to tell us 
all about esports and the economic opportunity that we're missing out on. But first, Brandon, what is the distinction between just being a casual gamer and esports? Ooh, diving right into it. Diving right into it. We don't have a lot of time. Well, it's like great to see. Yeah, great to see you guys. Not a lot of time. Uh, what is the distinction between a casual gamer and a competitive gamer? Um, I think it is people who you could consider are taking on the activity the same way they would in a traditional sport. So it would be someone who practices, someone who has coaches, someone who is trying to be in the top five to ten percent of their craft. Right. So it would be different than let's say someone who plays Fortnite. 18 hours a day because that's their chosen way to spend time. It'd be someone who's saying, I aspire to win tournament money. I aspire to be ranked. I aspire to be compared to others nationally or internationally in the space. And so that is how I would describe a competitive gamer versus just your average picking up a controller player. And how does one train? Oof, a lot of ways. Okay. Actually, it's interesting, right? Because, like, you know, there's different capacities. Some people play solo games, right? First-person shooters. It's just you versus others and kind of a battle royale setting. And then there's a lot of environments that I think are probably more fun, particularly on an esports capacity, which are team-oriented, right? And so you've got three teammates. If it's Rocket League, you've got five teammates if it's Valorant. And so you can train with your teammates, right? You're having matches against others online and or in person at your LAN. Um, and you're just literally playing the game. And there's actual coaches. I, we actually write today. Uh, just got one of our coaches uh, doing some work up at Chippewa Valley Technical College um, okay. for Valorant. They did six hours of training uh, to help their squad get better, right? And there's a lot of minutia, but it'd be the same way if you're a basketball player and you're a point guard. You need someone to come in and teach you point guard skills, right? So in a competitive gaming environment, team sport, you'd be doing the same. Some people are set for certain roles, and so they need to hone in and, and kind of figure those things out. So my question for you, if it's like sports that way, do you reach a certain age where you like age out? You're like Tom Brady's too old to play quarterback. Is it something like that for esports? Yeah, it's actually humbling, Derek, to be candid, because it is probably the most competitive, I would say, sport in that way that I know of in the world, and that most people retire by about twenty four. Wow. Twenty five. It's like a being a ballet dancer. Oh. It, it is. And you know, it's honestly it's a lot about the fast switch muscles, eye, you know, eye coordination. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I'm thirty seven and felt spry until I got involved in esports and I became just geriatric to the industry, right? I mean, everyone's <laughs> so young. So yeah, it, it is something where today that happens, but also candidly, it's one of those things where it's not just because of your physical attributes. A lot of times today the prize pools and earning a living in esports, you know, if you're top one percent you can make the things that you see on the news and the many, many millions. But on average you're not earning an income that's probably commensurate with I got perhaps advanced education and I am a professional or working, right? So it's a, at some point you have to kind of weigh that. Like, well, I'm 25, maybe I made 50,000 last year, but I don't have health benefits. Do I want to keep doing this realistically till I'm 35? So I think there's both the physical side of it and the realistic business side, which so you got to make a choice. Is there a similar awkward transition? I have friends who are D1 athletes in college, right? And they don't end up playing professionally. And there's a weird identity shift that happens from being I'm an athlete to I have to figure out what I want to do with my life. Is it the same with esports competitors? Oh, uh, certainly so. Um, I would say, though, realistically, it's it's you're more um, notable in a more niche community today. Now, that's changing, honestly, based on demographics, right? Because one of the things that I speak a lot to that is always kind of confounding to people is like, hey, you know, when your nieces, nephews, aunts, you know, uh, kids watch video games on YouTube, we as parents or we see that and we go, what the hell are you doing? Like, what's yeah. going on here? Right. Like, it doesn't make sense. 
but to them it does. So the transition would be something I would compare to to maybe adult society. We don't know. Hey, if you were an esports athlete, oh, that's special. Or you know, I was a D one volleyball player. That is easier for us to conceptualize. If you're under, let's say, 25, it would be a much bigger deal. Like, wow, you were a professional competitor and now you've transitioned out. So I don't think it's as difficult comparatively to a traditional sport today because generally society doesn't quite know what it means yet. When they hear, oh, I've won a bunch of money or, oh, by the way, you you know did this, you traveled all over the world, then they kind of perk up. But it's not quite there yet where you're like, oh, volleyball, I get it. I got what you did. So, so let me ask you this because now I'm so intrigued. Mm-hmm. So um, are there camps? Like so, I I played football and baseball in college, and so there were camps. I went to all these camps when I was growing up. Do they have the same thing for esports? Yeah, there's more and more forming every day, which is good news. Um, we actually had the fortune of running one at MPS about two years ago um, through a partner of ours and Wendell Willis. Who I'm sure you know oh, yeah, well, right? Sure. Wendell was a big catalyst for helping that happen. And and really, what camps are great for is not only the training side of it, but the accessibility side of it, because it's much like anything else, where you can get advanced training, you can get advanced time with experts, you become better at it. And a lack thereof keeps you from attaining those certain objectives. And, of course, there's accessibility issues with sports as we know them today in baseball, football, basketball. And so we're trying to reduce those in esports as well. But, yes, that was going to be my next question. And we're trying. We're trying to proliferate those out a lot more. But, you know, like they, as much as anything else, require logistics, price, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, hey, there's a basketball court and a basketball. Esports requires a fair amount today more um, logistics coordination because you need high-end computers oftentimes or you need make sure you have great – uh, Ethernet and you know uh, internet speeds and some of that kind of stuff. So it requires a little bit more finagling, but more camps are coming, which is so, really exciting. So um, I know for athletes now they're always talking about cross training. So mm-hmm. if you are a uh, football player, you know you should probably look at track or maybe look at maybe basketball, mm-hmm. right? Uh, different kind of sport, different muscles. Is it one game? So Valorant your game? Is that what you just play, or do you like oh I'm Valorant this time, but I'm going to play this? Yeah, it's a great question. I would answer that today that at the at the higher ends it is. I mean, similar to specialization in other competitive sports. You know, likely, unless you're Bo Jackson, right, you're not going to be D1 in three different things. At this time, particularly, it seems in traditional, you've chosen your path. If you want to be very competitive in esports, you've likely chosen a game to do that with. But similar to others, if you're just a casual competitive gamer, you can kind of spread out. I will say it probably goes more along the lines of the type of game. So NBA 2K is a basketball game. If you're an NBA 2K player, you probably are good at Madden or other things, but you may not be competitive, competing in a tournament to try and win. And similarly, a really growing and popular space is what's called the FGC community, which is fighting game community. And this always resonates with me because it was actually born out of arcade culture. This was a place where people used to play one-on-one in arcades, transitioned to consoles, and now it's still kind of kept that thing up. So you play Street Fighter or Tekken or some of those games. You're bringing it back. Yeah, you know those. You you might as well be speaking Greek right now. I have no Uh, idea what these games are. But we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk because you're an evangelist for the economic opportunity that Milwaukee and Wisconsin has in investing in esports. And so Brandon Chalker, our guest from who is the founder of MKE Sports Alliance, will be here when we get back to answer that question. He is Derek Mosley. I am Kristen Bry. This is Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. A big thanks to my guest co-host, Derek Mosley. We still have Brandon Chalker here, founder of Milwaukee Esports Alliance. And I tease this, so we have to answer it. 
you evangelize how we met actually was you evangelizing what Wisconsin is missing out on by not investing more in the opportunity of the growing industry of esports. So what is the economic opportunity? Yeah, so something I'm really passionate about is this is kind of a timing thing, right? So I think sometimes people get the perception like, well, okay, you can go play basketball with a court and a basketball and you can create a camp, you can create a league, you can do these things. The NBA doesn't own basketball. Like you can do that. And what's different about esports today, although there is a massive lawsuit that just got uh, brought, which will be very interesting to see if it shapes the industry, but previous to that, publishers own the games that are being played. And so they have IP, right? And they're able to say, this is how we'd like our game to be played and what can be done with it. And that's okay. Certainly respect to that. But it sort of limits and creates these sort of silos of who, quote unquote, owns the opportunity for games. And so it's one of those things where Wisconsin is at this really crucial time, I would say, that, you know, if I don't think people would like it if the WIAA was owned by someone in Los Angeles. They'd say, mm-hmm. well, that feels weird to me. This is our Wisconsin high school ecosystem. Like, I, I don't really understand how you can have that be owned by someone out of state. Well, in esports, you can. Because if you have the platform to play the video games and you get an agreement that says, hey, uh, you can only play these games through this platform. And that platform is not in Wisconsin. Well, now our high school players who would like to play have to play through somewhere else. So that's just one example. But this idea of now is the time. Now is the time to capture and create and be entrepreneurial and, and provide ourselves the opportunity to capitalize in state because there's so much VC funding and there's so much on the coast going on in this space that it's just, to me, it's a real passion part of, I don't want Wisconsin to lose out on this opportunity and this growth of the industry because it will probably be owned. And I think you've seen this in different capacities over time, just really in the world, whether it's broadband or some of these kind of unique technologies that someone gets kind of the lion's share of it and then everyone has to use it, but they can't kind of take advantage of it themselves locally. So that's, I'll just put that at a pin in that, that that is the reason for the why. It's a really crucial time to be able to own our own entities. Now, the economic opportunity, right? So from a player-based perspective, you have massive growth in middle and high school. I don't think that's any surprise, right? Gaming is a part of their currency of communication. They do homework through their consoles. They communicate with people through these channels. So you're seeing, you know, let's say we have right now, which we are so fortunate to have, the Wisconsin High School Esports Association goes from, I think, around seven years ago, six or seven teams to what will be upwards of around 200 this year. In the Wisconsin Collegiate Ecosystem, we have, I think, right now 32 Wisconsin colleges with an esports program. And we're talking people that are employed to be coaches there. We're talking students on scholarship. We're talking facilities being built. So there's economics around that, right? Purchasing and the people that are moving here from out of state. You've got pro sides. You've got a lot of different things. So there's just a lot of opportunity economically for us to get in the game. And I will say in other states or other places where this might be being done, what I would call best in class, public-private partnership. North Carolina, I think, just did a $16 million grant, the state of North Carolina, to open up new facilities, to empower their local community, to have opportunities to become known as a beacon in the country for this kind of thing. So there's lots of places where growth is happening and the economics, I think, follow that. But with being prudent, right, <laughs> then maybe that's the Midwestern in me. You know, we don't just want to get all the VC funding, spend flippantly and then like blow the opportunity. But um, there is a lot there. He is Brennan Chalker, founder at Milwaukee Esports Alliance. When is the Wisconsin Esports 
Summit? Yeah, March 11th is the state's preeminent uh, gathering for the esports and uh, non-esports community to come together to learn uh, and to experience what it's all about. So we're pretty excited about that. We had over 350 people last year, UWM Panther Arena. Uh, we've got Tony Hawk on a Jumbotron, which looks like people of my age. We've also got Rocket League, which can excite everybody else. So it's a really great time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Brandon. Thank you, Derek Mosley. Thank you. Two hours flew by. Wait, Happy quick. Friday. Yeah. I hope everyone enjoys their weekend. We will be back on Monday. Steve Scafidi will be here next. John McCure and Julia Fellow are live at the Auto Show for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Time is 2.58.